This morning's gospel reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. If you'll remember, we're going to pick up from where we were last week in the gospel, and we're going to read the whole thing today. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood at the red, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your hometown the things that we have heard you do at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heavens was shut up for three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, maybe you saw on Facebook or you saw in a couple of different places that these next four weeks, as we're walking through Luke between now and Ash Wednesday, uh, including Transfiguration Sunday, they all seem to have a relationship to each other. And I'd like to think about it in terms of having to live the impossible. Often feels like what we're called to do as Christians, the way that we're invited to walk, feels all too often impossible to actually achieve. And maybe it's wise to take a moment and be honest about that and say, yeah, this might be harder uh, than we always realize, and maybe start to work apart some of those pieces. And to start this four-week journey, I think we need to start by talking about the nature of something being impossible in the first place. When you look at something and you're like, oh my gosh, this thing is way more than I can entirely comprehend. I think about a lot of things in our lives. We look at the world around us, and it all seems really impossible, right? I mean, even just the reality that we are thrown into every day, if we take a moment to think about it, it all seems incredible. Days and nights, stars 
and bodies that we are in and that we have consciousness and that we have life and that we have emotions and that I can change the tenor of my voice and it sounds differently to you than if I just talk like this. That, we don't think about it, but that's crazy. That just waves of sound can change how you perceive something. Even the function of our lungs going in and out and in and out, and this in and out is what keeps us alive is ridiculous. Let alone, by the way, the story of this Jesus person that we talk about that is supposedly fully God and fully human, and at this moment is telling us about what he is about. He is giving us the thesis of his ministry, the thesis of the gospel today. And I think our instincts, our instincts are to explain and to compartmentalize. I think that works out a lot of the time. We know so much more now about how the world works than what we may have known a couple hundred years ago. We know how stars work now. We know how days and nights work. We know more through medicine about our bodies than we've ever known before. We know how they work. We can help cure them when they are not doing as well as we'd hope. We know our lungs. We know how they work and they breathe in and out. Then we come to God and Jesus, and we can do the same thing. I don't know if any of you remember the prayer of Jabez. I remember my grandparents gave me one of the little coins that I could put in my pocket, but it was this whole idea that if you prayed this prayer, oh, that you would bless me and expand my territory. Please be with me in all that I do and keep me from all trouble and pain. God would grant the requests on your heart. That's a great way to be able to compartmentalize understanding God a little bit better, right? How many of you have at some point said, dear Jesus, help me find my keys? And then three minutes later, you found them. I think it's really easy to say, well, this is how I can understand God a little bit better. God is the invisible helper of my key location. And lots of us, when we talk about our call stories, the reasons why we show up week after week in some building to talk about some incredible thing, we can put those in some neat categories too. I can talk about the fact that I went to church week after week, my grandfather's church, and eventually I was saved because my grandfather helped me walk through what it meant to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was baptized in water at the age of 13, And that is the way that I can help explain this incredible, outstanding, outlandish, impossible thing. And I don't want to say that any of that is necessarily bad, right? Lots of us need help to build a foundation. We all need these stories that help mold. They become solid like stones, and they lay a foundation for us to stand on. Because otherwise, this world continuously slips into chaos, And it gets a little harder to understand where we go and how we walk from day to day. These solid stones help us to stay upright when our world seems to always be shifting around us. We try to ensure that some of these ideas are solidified into the ground. Now, people in Luke have their own compartments as well. 
The scroll that Jesus is reading from is from the prophet Isaiah. This is a story that these people in Nazareth would have known about. And they hear these stories that they've been told and find ways to put it all together neatly in their own easily-to-put-together boxes. Some of these stories, these proclamations that Jesus talked about, are good remembrances. And others, like the year of the Lord's favor, were hopeful, hopeful visions to the end of the world. Now, I think any good preacher will want to fashion him or herself like this to proclaim the best news possible in the most hopeful way possible that every Sunday, or if we're talking about these folks, every Saturday, you get a good understanding of what's going on and you feel spiritually fed to project you out into the world weeks and weeks and weeks ahead. I mean, that feels good to me. I want to do that for you. I want to give you a good word so that you're able to make it through the rest of the week. And when Jesus talks about the, the year of the Lord's favor, he's talking about this thing called jubilee. And if you see this, this is the idea, it's in Deuteronomy, and we won't go to there, but it was this idea that after seven Sabbath years, you'd have a 49th year, and then the 50th year would be the year of the Lord's favor. And the idea would be that all debts would be cleared, everybody would be relieved of their slavery, people would be liberated, and everything would lay fallow, there would be enough food for everybody to live on, no one would have to work for an entire year. That sounds like the best idea I've ever heard. Everybody take a break for a year, because this is the year of Jubilee. And oh, that mortgage that you have, it's been cleared. That student loan debt that you have, gone. That is the year of the Lord's favor. Everything that you owe is gone. Sounds amazing. And this is how they've been taught, that this is their promise and this is their foundation. The stones that they've used to compartmentalize their lives are now laid solid. And you know what? The people love it. They're amazed by what they hear. And they love to hear it because it makes sense to them what they know is true. This is the kind of receiving line I hope for every Sunday. I want you all to go up and say, are you Arthur Anderson's son? You're the son of the guy who's worked in a shop 50 years, but you can speak the truth. Thank you, Adam. I mean, we don't like to be honest, but in seminary, that's part of our dreams, right? Now, lots of debate has gone on about when the people say, is this Joseph's son? Because we don't really have context, and it seems to be a bridge moment between something good and what's coming up, right? Is it complimentary? Like, is this Joseph's son? Like, this is our hometown boy. Or is it something more sneering? Oh, is this Joseph's son? And I'm not sure what the people think, but I do think to Jesus that it was a sign that perhaps they didn't entirely get what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus, foolish young preacher that he is, decides to push the people a little further. He couldn't leave well enough alone and take the accolades and go home. No, he pushes further. Because our compartments don't always stay as foundations, do they? 
They don't just stay as flat pieces that we can hold ourselves steady on. Sometimes with those stones, we start to build walls around ourselves. And if the current rhetoric in this country is any indication, we have learned a lot about what walls mean for each other. Walls are meant to divide, to protect, to define what's legal and illegal, to define who's a friend and who's an enemy, and to decide who's an ally or who's a foe. And friends, that's just really looking at the New York Times in the last couple months. I'm not saying anything we haven't already heard. But Jesus begins to criticize the walls that the people in Nazareth has, have built. Do you realize, Jesus is saying to the people, that these stories you thought were just about you were never just about you? That the way that you've been thinking might not be what God had necessarily always intended? Then maybe the circle goes a little wider than the country town of about 400 people in Jesus' day that Nazareth was. Maybe the circle is beyond the tribe that you live in. And please keep in mind that the figures that Jesus references that he pulls scripture from, he's not just making it up, aren't small figures. You might not know every single prophet in the New Testament, right? You might not know every single prophet in the Old Testament, but I'll tell you what, you probably have heard of Elijah and Elisha at least once or twice. These were the prophets of the Old Testament. Big names. Now, there were people that were hurting, right? Both of these stories, the Elijah and Elisha story, say, yeah, there were people hurting in our tribe, but where did the prophets go? They went out to the periphery, out beyond the people that we were supposed to pay attention to out where the walls of the people in Nazareth were not. And what happens? Well, they became this. Thamos. This word in the New Testament means straightforward, unabashed rage. When the first translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, were translated into Greek, they use this word often in a way to describe the type of anger that comes out of your nostrils. Have you ever been that angry? Where your nostrils flare. And you're not thinking it is a flashing red rage. Of course, the people did what they were going to do with that flashing red nostril flaring rage. They got up. They wanted to toss Jesus off a cliff, which would have made for a really short gospel had that been effective. They wanted him gone, and not just gone out of their sight, but gone off the cliff and gone for good. Is this Joseph's son indeed? Why? I mean, I'm pretty convinced that all of y'all, if you've gone to church long enough, have heard a sermon that you weren't too happy about. I have not heard, because this probably would have persuaded me one way or the other, I have not heard of Old Stone ever tossing anybody off of a cliff. At least so far. I mean, maybe they're upset at Jesus, right? I mean, maybe they're mad about the fact that Jesus said these words, and who do you think you are, Jesus, son of Joseph? 
But I wonder if it's more about what it might mean to have a wall knocked down in your life. And here's the other interesting tidbit that I find is that Jesus finds his way away from the rage that was induced, the violence that was ready to come to him in that moment. Seems to make me think that that rage might not have the effect that we'd hope it would have if we get angry at Jesus. Friends, all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ is going to break down the walls that we set for ourselves. There will always, always, always be the poor, be the blind, the enslaved people outside of the periphery that we like to consider our safe foundational home. The people who would enrage us simply by the reminder of somebody that the gospel is there for them too. That Jesus did not intend it to just be for a specific people that had built the right walls around themselves. But this friends, is the nature of the impossible thesis that Jesus offers us here as we begin this conversation together, that there is no one who is not deeply deserving of the good news of the gospel, and it may be the person, it turns out, who angers us the most that they do deserve it is precisely the person we need to share it with. And so where's your raging keystone? Where's the place where the foundations that keep you stable have become the walls that keep people out that don't fit your definition of what God is calling us to? It often means the God and the Jesus we have inside that space is going to be too safe and defined by what we want and not the Jesus that we find in the scripture today and that we will find over and over again as we draw from the wells of the gospel. In our Nazareth, friends, the gospel may not be just for white folks. It might not just be for middle-class folks. It might not just be for blue-collar or white-collar or for conservative or liberal people or people who are apolitical or people who are straight or people who came here legally or people who aren't convenient. The gospel is not the tile that you can call on for spiritual relocation when you have lost your way, and it's not the Amazonofblessings.com, and it's certainly not the stone compartment we use to shield ourselves when things feel really difficult with Jesus Christ. Now, did any of those upset you even a little bit? Are you kind of like, we only have a hill, but maybe we'll toss Adam off of it? Maybe right there is your keystone. And friends, I mean to tell you right now, my heart is racing harder than it has in the eight months before this because even presenting this stuff makes me nervous. And the gospel isn't always the thing that will make you want to shake my hand afterwards and say how good of a sermon it was. It should, on occasion, make us angry. It should, on occasion, make us think that it is a bunch of stories, and why should we believe in this in the first place? I have better understanding of how the scripture should be, so I'm going to believe that first. If 
this gospel does not make all of us, myself included, angry at times, then shame on us for putting God in such a simple box of our own design. And shame on me for not giving you the gospel in the way that it is to be scandalized in our lives just every once in a while. In the same way, I won't do sports sermons more than once a year. Probably don't have these kind of sermons more than once a year. But every once in a while, maybe we should be uncomfortable. So I invite you all to pray this week about your keystone. Where is that stone that the second somebody starts to press on it, it makes you angry? My God is not a God who loves person X. And maybe you don't say it that way. But boy, if there's a rage that makes you want to toss that person or that concept off a cliff, that might be the keystone. And trust me, I have got more than I wish I did. Pray where there's that rage. And if there isn't any, we probably need to dig deeper and invite Jesus to knock those walls down. Because on the other side of that wall is where the beauty of the impossible lies. That the gospel is for everyone. That everyone in this world can be redeemed. That sight can be restored, brothers and sisters. That those who have been enslaved by sin, by whatever, by people, can be free. That there is a place in this world where debts can be cleared, and it is here. Here with Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the impossible life that we can live into. And as we look into this next week and we see the calling of the disciples, the one thing that I am convinced of is no matter what happens, on the other side of our walls, Jesus is there. Who no matter who we are or where we come from or what we do, Jesus will call us to him And that's where we'll pick up next week. Thanks be to God.